I'm Liz Doherty, digital editor of the Princeton Alumni Weekly, and this is our second podcast about student mental health here at Princeton. Last time, we heard from three students who are active in mental health initiatives on campus. And today, I'm pleased to be speaking with Jess Deutsch, an alum in the class of 1991, and Kelvin Chin, Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at Princeton University's Health Services Department. Could I ask you both to briefly explain your work and what you've been doing for student mental health here at Princeton? So I am the Director of Counseling and Psychological Services here at Princeton. I've been in this role since 2013. And so, you know, my job is all about just mental health, um, both the direct services that we provide to students through the counseling service, but also um, consulting with faculty and staff around sort of mental health, um, talking and thinking through sort of best practices around sort of supporting mental health more broadly on the campus. Um, and uh, and really just trying to sort of figure out the best ways to support students, uh, you know, holistically. Um, I, th- I think that that's a, that's a lot of what I do. And I'm Jess Deutsch. I'm an advisor working privately with college and grad school applicants across the country and encouraging them to go through the process of next steps in their educational lives with a sense of purpose and well-being. I'm a member of the class of 91, as you mentioned, and I have a master's in education and in social work, and in recent past was working on campus in health professions and advising, in health professions advising and athletics. And breaking news, I'll be writing a column coming soon for the PAW on student well-being. Now we're really excited about that. And Jess also works uh, and lives locally, which is cool because you're here and you know some of the students that we've spoken to. Okay, so let's start with. Um, What resources does the university have to help students who are struggling with mental health? And are they enough? This was something that the students had talked to us about last time. And are there plans to add to or change anything that's offered? Um, Calvin, it sounds like it might be a little bit in your wheelhouse. Do you want (laughs) to start with that? Sure, yeah. I'm really proud of the resources that the university provides to support mental health. Um, It starts with the counseling service. The Counseling Service has uh, over 30 mental health practitioners that work there. We have staff. uh, Our staff include psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, uh, psychiatrists and nurse practitioners. And we provide free short-term counseling, crisis intervention, medication evaluations, medication management, um, couples therapy, group therapy, as well as workshops. One of the things that I'm, I'm particularly proud about is the ways in which we try to sort of create as many different access points as possible for students to access mental health services. So a good example of that are the Tigerwell outreach counselors that we've been able to hire and put in place across the university. These are counselors who have offices outside of the Makash Health Center so that they can see students uh, you know, at Jadwin Gym or in a residence hall or in another space on campus that might feel more accessible or easier to, um, to sort of find or more comfortable for, for a particular student. Um, the other thing that these outreach counselors do is that they really work on developing relationships with the different communities that they serve so that it further reduces barrier to entry, right? So that a student might feel even more comfortable accessing services if they need it. The other thing that we have in place is something called the CPS CARES line. This was launched a year ago. 
And this provides students with 24-7 access to a mental health counselor by phone, um, 365 days of, e of the year. So a student, regardless of where they are, they could be halfway across the world, if they need to speak with a counselor in the moment at any time, they can call the CPS CARES line and get connected to a counselor. Um, the final thing that, that we launched this past year, um, and this is through the support of a grant uh, through the state of New Jersey, is uh, UWill, which is a telehealth company that provides uh, to Princeton students free ongoing counseling through telehealth. They're 30-minute appointments. Um, students just need to create an account on their platform, and then they can choose from any number of counselors who are available and schedule right there on the platform. And unlike the CPS CARES line, this is really intended to be ongoing counseling. And so this is completely free. Students don't need to use any of their insurance benefits to access a counselor through UWill. They can see counselors after hours, on the weekends. They can even have uh, text conversations with their counselors through UWill. Um, and so that that's another sort of just uh, effort to just try to make sure that there are a lot of different opportunities for students to kind of get the support that they need. And then the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, sometimes students really want to be seen in person, right? So you will is just telehealth. We have developed something called the Exclusive Provider Network, which includes over 200 mental health prof professionals in the Princeton area. And these are psychologists and social workers who have agreed to see Princeton students who have the student health plan for just a $20 copay. And these are therapists who ordinarily may not accept insurance, but are willing to sort of see Princeton students because, you know, the, we are able to sort of adjust the reimbursement rates on our student health plan um, so that they're competitive. And also because uh, a lot of these mental health practitioners in the community really enjoy seeing Princeton students. And so it's yet another option for students um, who would like to see a counselor, you know, maybe weekly, and there are no session limits um, with this, and there's no deductible that they have to pay, and so it's it's another another access point for therapy. That really sounds like a lot. Do do you find that students are taking advantage of all these things? They are. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that we've we've noticed is that you know we've. Uh, We've increased the staff at the counseling service like by over 40% over the 10 years that I've been working at Princeton. And what happens is that, you know, as we hire new counselors, we just see an increased number of students, right? It's almost like a vacuum, right? And so um, students definitely are making use of like the mental health resources available on campus. Um, we're seeing students take advantage of you will. Certainly the CPS CARES line is something that we see a lot of um, utilization around. And then, you know, for the exclusive provider network, you know, we, we can see that directly just even in the costs that the student health plan is, um, is paying, you know, to cover sort of the mental health care. And so the good news is that, you know, students are taking advantage of um, all of the different range of resources that are available. The vacuum, that's sort of an interesting mm -hmm. thought there that like, you know, the more you add, the more like it, it like all the appointments go. Um, do you feel like you have enough? Do you feel like it's enough? What's being? I mean, it sounds like a lot. Does it feel like it's enough? What's being offered? You know, I think that uh, we always 
are looking to sort of expand when we can, right? And so, you know, I mentioned that it's kind of like a vacuum, right? The more counselors we hire, that just results in more students utilizing our services. And so one of the things that um, that it can be challenging, I think, for students is that, you know, because of the number of students who, who seek out our services within the counseling service, we can only do sort of short-term work, right? So we can't see students you know, in an ongoing way, right? The other thing that can happen is that um, it limits the frequency with which we can see students, right? And so in most cases, we'll see students, you know, every other week. Um, and so I think that that can be frustrating for students is, you know, they, I, I think that they, on the whole, have a really positive experience with the counselors who they see at CPS. And I think that they may wish to be able to see their their counselors more frequently. Um, but because of, again, the demand, we see almost 3,000 students a year, um, we have to figure out ways of um, distributing our services so that the students who are most in need get the care that they need. And if we can connect a student to one of these off-campus resources, we do, um, so that you know, if a student wants or needs weekly treatment, they're able to get it. I think it's interesting, and kudos to Calvin and to CPS and Tigerwell for all the extensions and expansions and um, meeting students where they are. I think that that, that work's been really uh, apparent. And it's interesting to try to reconcile that with the student perceptions from the previous podcast about um, students not having time to use the services. I think the issue of how much students are using service and how little they're talking about it um, creates some discrepancies in student understanding of what's possible. And so I think that that um, it's interesting to think about what's happening in that gap. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, what's challenging is that even though there are so many resources, I think that, you know, and we try to sort of at every opportunity that we can let students know about them, you know, mental health resources like other kinds of medical care, you know, you only really look for it or pay attention to sort of what is available, like when you need it, like mm -hmm. in the moment. And so, you know, in the middle of a mental health crisis, sometimes it can feel confusing to sort of know, all right, look, well, where of the many different resources available should I start, right? And then, you know, there are also all the other barriers that exist around accessing care, right, having to do with, you know, maybe, you know, you, what it would mean to you to sort of like reach out for mental health support, right? Like what it means to sort of acknowledge that you have a struggle that, that could benefit from a therapist, right? Stigma still exists, and I think that that's something that absolutely can impact um, someone's, you know, readiness to, to reach out for help when they need it. When we were talking to the students, we definitely got on the subject of the campus culture mm -hmm. because, the, and these are students who, like all of them do things on campus involving mental health. And so they're aware of how much was offered. Um, one of them in particular gave us a, a list and I, was, I had the same reaction. I was like, wow, that really sounds like a lot. Um, but they said students don't always, just like Jess just said, um, don't always feel like they have the time to take care of it. And also, um, they felt like the messaging was not strong enough on make this a priority. That here at Princeton, the emphasis is on your academics. You need to be achieving that is priority one, taking time for yourself. And they got into, you know, we were talking about 
um, taking care of yourself, not self-care, not mud masks and facials, right? Mm -hmm. But like, you know, taking care of yourself, eating right, um, exercising, sleep, exactly. These things that just make you a healthy person mentally, physically, that the messaging was not strong enough that that should be a priority for them. And I wonder what you guys think of that, like whether you're seeing the same thing, where does it come from? I think that this is an issue that is clearly having an impact at Princeton and also a much broader issue in the culture at large. And so we we haven't normalized the idea of self-care in, in, in those basic needs um, as a part of high performance. And so I think that's the narrative that really needs to change um, and that is a work in progress. And so as many times as a university office may say it or a faculty member may say it, that whether or not it's heard or felt by a student who has in their head this other narrative that what matters most is how I perform academically, um, it's, it's just an ongoing process. And so I, th- I think we'll never be done with it. I think, um, I think about my own time on campus as compared to now. We, we didn't have a language for any of this. Um, or one that we were utilizing in any meaningful way. And so it was much more hidden. It was much more stigmatized. But still, there's work to be done so that it feels like taking care of yourself in before there's a big problem or when there's a struggle is the right thing to do and and you're in a community that supports that. I think that that's, that's still very much a work in progress here. I agree with you completely. I think that's spot on. I think that, you know, it, it's it's a larger issue in, in our culture even, right, around sort of what is valued and what is perceived as like okay to do. And I think that, you know, part of it is even just the fact that, you know, Princeton students are so high achieving, right? They, they have to do so much and be so excellent to sort of even get accepted at Princeton that that performing and performing well becomes such a part of their identity just because that's something that they're so used to doing, which makes complete sense. And so it can be really challenging to think about putting, you know, their health before, you know, an assignment that's due or making a decision about, you know what, I want to do you know, a couple of less extracurricular activities so that I can have more time just to sort of hang out. You know, I think that like the Princeton culture and our culture at large is so heavily focused on just sort of achieving and doing more and um, that that it can be difficult to sort of make that proactive decision to do less even and to, to really think about, you know, other things. And then there are also real pressures, right? That it's not just internalized pressure. You know, I mean, when you think about Princeton students who are interested in becoming doctors or becoming lawyers, going to, you know, going into consulting, becoming investment bankers, getting jobs, you know, at Google, right? GPA is a real thing, right? Like the the achievements that you um, accomplish during your college career do make a difference in terms of whether or not you 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 get you know the the most coveted sort of positions and you know you get accepted into the the highest 
you know, rated graduate programs. And so, you know, that's all true too. And that's all something that they're having to balance as well. And so it is, it just ends up being, I think, really challenging. Is, are you, like your office or anyone else on campus trying to get that word out, like trying to, you know, get the messaging to change a little bit that like, you should take care of yourself. This is important. Getting into Yale Law School is important, but so is taking care of yourself. You know what I mean? Like, is anyone doing that or, or trying to do that? I think there's so many offices that do it, you know, mm -hmm. and as Jess mentioned, you know, it, it, it almost doesn't matter, right? Like how many people you have saying it, although that's really important, you know, if you're pushing against, you know, all of these other sort of cultural norms that say, well, no, that's not important. But I do think that at the university, you know, the fact that, the, you know, the president of the university even has put health and well-being as, as part of the informal mission of the university, I think, speaks volumes about centering health and well-being and, and understanding the importance of health and well-being to thriving, to student success, you know. And I think that that, that also is a message that's reiterated um, from, you know, staff of the residential colleges, right? You think about all of the different um, live well, be well sort of programming that is done in the residential colleges that really tries to create and foster opportunities for community and self-care. Um, I think that, you know, there absolutely are faculty that try to sort of reinforce that message, that talk to their students directly about health and well-being. Um, and the, the Center for Career Development, I think, also does that. So, you know, speaking directly to your point about, you know, the question about, you know, the, the job at Google versus, you know, taking care of yourself. I think that, you know, they, the career advisors are having conversations about, you know, you can't, you can, you're not going to be successful if you're not taking care of yourself, you know. And so I think there are a lot of folks that are, that are trying to have that conversation. And I think, as Jess said, I think that we have to continue to have it, right? And um, it's a really challenging thing to sort of think about, you know, how we can change a culture. But part of it happens through conversations and part of it happens through really just trying to think more broadly about like how we can define success. And and I would add to that, I think that there's a really exciting opportunity for alumni to be part of this conversation if we can be creative about facilitating those conversations so that so that alumni can tell the stories of their own struggles and their successes and and the ways in which their attendant um, attendance to their own well-being has been a factor in the achievements that they're able to accomplish and the careers that they're able to, um, the, the contributions that they're able to make. Like This is a long haul, and I think there are a lot of alumni who have stories of struggle and success, and telling all of that, I think, will kind of um, continue to have students think in new ways about what it means if they're struggling and what it will look like to to have successful lives. Oh, that's a really good point. A lot of times when you read that great Paw story about the person who had this amazing career, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily see all of the background that went into this or what's happening in their personal life or in their wellness life. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good point. A lot of that's invisible mm -hmm. to students who are looking at it from the outside. You know, when we're talking about, we started hearing a lot about student mental health, not only at Princeton, 
but all across the country just a couple of years ago, and how the need and the, the problem of it was getting so great. And I wonder if you guys have a perspective on what changed. Did something change? Are students fundamentally different today? Has the world changed? Are we just paying closer attention? Was it the pandemic? Do you have a sense of this? I mean, I think there are generational differences. Um, there's a sociologist named Jean Twenge who wrote a book called iGen that speaks to differences between, you know, what's typically called Gen Z and other, you know, other big groups of of of, of people, right? Like when you compare Gen Z to Gen X and to, to millennials, you see actual differences in rates of things like anxiety and depression. You also see very positive things, right? Like increased sort of tolerance, um, uh, increased commitment to sort of like diversity, lower rates of substance abuse, lower rates of unplanned pregnancy. Um, so I do think generationally there is a difference. And, and there's there have been a lot of researchers that have tried to sort of understand like why we are seeing higher rates of depression and anxiety among um, young people of this generation. And, you know, people have thought about sort of the impact of social media on, um, on mental health. Um, they talk about sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the level of, of isolation that, you know, a lot of young people sort of experience. Um, and I think related to that, the pandemic absolutely has had a big impact um, on everyone's mental health, but especially on young people, right? When during the height of the pandemic, when they would do these um, surveys of mental health concerns, they saw increased rates of mental health concerns across all populations, but the highest increases were for young people, right? And I think it's easy to understand why, because um, COVID hit young people, you know, our Princeton students, you know, a lot of them were in high school. And so you think about the lost opportunities for connection with each other, the lost learning opportunities, all of the, the, the ways that, you know, the normal sort of like tasks of growing up can help, you know, prepare you for you know, interacting with new people that you meet for, you know, being able to sort of like manage really challenging situations, right? You know, it, it, a lot of it was forestalled by the pandemic and being isolated and sort of learning from home. And so, you know, that absolutely, I think, has had an impact. I mean, when we look at rates of mental health concerns for Princeton students in particular, the good news is that, you know, the rates of, of anxiety and depression seem to have been going back down following big increases during the pandemic years. But it's also within a context of steadily increasing rates of depression and anxiety, I would say, over the past 10 years, even pre-pandemic. Yeah, and I think I would also pair with what Calvin just described, the epidemic of loneliness that is so much affecting the world right now. And so there's a sense that of like constant connection and constant um, information and a million screens open and so much to be taking in and processing and also a sense of being alone in doing so. And I, I think, again, we're not immune on that campus at Princeton. Um, th there's an alum, uh, Jeremy Noble, um, in Boston, who's doing some really interesting work on, uh, it's called Project Unlonely, 
um, looking at the ways that disconnection and connection are, are functioning and the role that art and expression can play in bringing people together. And um, I think that working on building community is probably Princeton's best chance and the world's best chance at, at countering what feels like and what is an epidemic right now. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind, too, is just, you know, I, I, I remember this was so um, powerful, but I was talking to a group of um, mostly first-year college students, and I asked them to, like, raise their hand if they had ever been part of, like, an active shooter drill, and almost everyone had raised their hand, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of chilling, right? Because that's certainly foreign to me. I've never been part of an active shooter drill, you know, mm -hmm. in high school. Um, but I think it just speaks to, you know, also just the reality of like what a lot of young people are are currently have, have lived through and are living through, right? You think about like the impacts of climate change and, you know, climate anxiety, I think is a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. The sense of sort of like worry about the future because, you know, all of the, the, the forecasts about like, you know, the most terrible things that will happen as a result of climate change are when you know, our, our students at Princeton are going to be kind of in the prime of their lives, right? You even think about just sort of like the political climate, right? Mm -hmm. And like how polarized things are and how truth becomes this like fungible thing. And I think that there can be a lot in the world that filters down and that can just sort of like exist as like a, 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 you know, something else, an additional burden to kind of have to shoulder, in addition to everything else you might have going on in your life. Um, so let me touch on something. Um, the students also brought up workload, um, and, and not, not in a, you know, my classes are too hard kind of a way, but more in like a, maybe the system is not set up for wellness kind of a way. Um, and they talked in particular about the calendar, which I think that we have now gotten some more information on that. Jess, you looked it up. Um, they were concerned that the semesters had been a little bit crunched back when exams were moved from January to December back in 2020. Um, and it actually sounds like that's not the case. The semester actually was not compressed. Um, which I thought was sort of interesting, but they all had come to the table with us with with this perception that professors were trying to fit too much material into the semester. And I'm wondering if there's some kind of a disconnect there. Have you heard that before, you two? And where do you think that's coming from? I mean, I I definitely have heard it, not necessarily about the change, but I think that it is a, a fact that 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 the semesters are you know, they may not have changed, but they are pretty short, right, when you compare it to um, some other colleges and universities. And so I think that that experience of feeling like there there has to be so much shoved into an abbreviated period of time, like I feel like that that makes complete sense to me that that would be the, their experience. Um, so I think that, you know, even though there may not have been a change, you know, it is really just interesting for 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 me to sort of think about right how how the lengths of our semesters came to be, you know, and to also, you know, I would be really curious about how other our Ivy peers like what are their semester lengths, right, and how do they achieve that and yet still, you know, uh, have their academic calendar structured in a way that 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 works for everyone, you know. Um. And I think that I think perception is reality. And so if it feels like 
like there isn't an acknowledgement of how fast this is moving and how much is being expected, then if it can add to the overwhelm. And if you add to that also that what students talked about a lot was the emphasis in their own minds about GPA as opposed to love of learning, then kind of why am I putting myself through the grind is, is maybe a question um, that they're asking. And, and that also contributes to this sense of like, it's just too much and too fast. And, um, and it puts them into this, what they described as survival mode as opposed to thriving. And um, that doesn't feel good. I know, and I feel like that's kind of can, can sometimes be the biggest shame because I've had so many conversations with students who are so passionate about learning and like mm-hmm. would love to be able to just take courses just because they're interested in them, right? Mm-hmm. And how how sometimes it can feel like, you know, you learn how to perform so you can get the grade versus learning for the sake of learning. And and that 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 I think is so tough because I think that everyone at the university wishes that, you know, what this what the students want is I think exactly what the faculty want, right? Is to really be able to dive into the material and to sort of like um, really engage with it in, in a meaningful way that feels, you know, really, you know, illuminating and exciting and inspiring. And, and it's not to say that, you know, there aren't a lot of students that do engage with the material in this way. But I I have heard from some students this sense that, you know, they have to put that as a secondary goal versus, you know, I, I need to I need to do what I need to do to sort of, you know, get the grade that I need to get, you know. And, and at the furthest extreme is when I hear students talk about actually choosing not to take certain courses because they fear that it's going to negatively impact their GPA, you know, and that seems like the biggest shame to me. It's like that you're you're not able to sort of really explore as fully as you, you might want to because of fear that, you know, this, your GPA is going to be negatively impacted. So what can students do, do you think, to make this a healthier campus? And you talked a little bit about what alumni can do. Um, faculty, the university, like what What are some things that we can do to kind of change that perception that you just spoke about? I mean, I think that one, I think students are already doing it, right? I mean, the students that you interviewed for the previous podcast, I think are really beautiful examples of students who are um, really invested and committed to sort of seeing about ways to change the culture, right? Like they're all advocates around sort of mental health and they've been doing a lot of really great work to sort of you know, get questions answered to sort of try to streamline processes that don't make sense, right? To give their impact and feedback on, you know, mental health resources and like what are the best ways to sort of um, put them out there? And, you know, are there things that are needed on campus that, you know, that we're not doing and how can we make those things happen, right? So I think part of it is is already being done, right? There's a lot of really beautiful advocacy. And And in my 10 years at Princeton, I have actually seen changes already in the culture and in the community, right, in terms of the students being willing to to open up about sort of challenges in terms of their willingness to even talk openly about seeking out help from the counseling service, right? And all of that makes a difference. How people talk about mental health concerns, how people can acknowledge vulnerability, anytime someone opens up about their own vulnerability, it makes the person that they're talking to 
feel a little bit more comfortable opening up about their vulnerability, right? And that's how you can build real intimacy. And that's also how you can chip away at, at a culture that really emphasizes perfectionism and it emphasizes just achievement at all costs, right? Is is people willing, being willing to open up about their, their actual experience. Um, I think that that's part of it. I think that, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is to sort of see you know, I mentioned that, you know, now health and well-being is part of our informal mission of the entire university to sort of see the sequelae of that, right? I'm, I'm really eager to sort of see sort of um, all of the different administrators and faculty at the university who I know are just as committed to sort of uh, health and well-being among our students as I am to see how we can come together and really think about, you know, you know, are the, are there different policies or ways that we're doing things that could easily be changed that could just make it a little bit healthier or easier for a student, right? That doesn't compromise at all their educational experience, but instead enhances it and supports it. And I think that there are those opportunities. And, you know, and, and the other thing that I notice is that in my time here, I see so many people who are really committed to that cause. And I think it's just harnessing that energy um, to to really... Um, see what can 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 be done and what can be changed and what can be made better. I think that's really hopeful. And I think that making the most of the moments when students do have the time to use their voices to be part of this conversation. And I, I'll just um, do a little shout out to winter session, which I think is this moment that exists now um, in between semesters where it's possible to explore and um, try something new and explicitly for the the love of learning it and um, and then sort of figure out how to create those smaller pauses throughout the year and um, and and infuse it into the the whole experience of of the time at Princeton and I also think I'll again um, raise the the opportunity and the resource of alumni who, I think there's a new poll of about alumni engagement that's just out that indicates alumni are really interested in engaging with current students and, and knowing what's going on on campus um, in the present moment. And I think that, that that desire for engagement can also really help to move this conversation in, forward in a way that, that will be honest and vulnerable and, and, and real. So that actually gets through a lot of my questions. You know, is there anything that we haven't touched on here that you'd like to talk about or anything you think people should know about the subject? I mean, I think, you know, my wish and, you know, and I think about sort of like the role of alumni and I, you know, I really take to heart what you were saying, Jess, about, you know, how alumni can be helpful. My wish is for students to be able to sort of have a broader perspective about life you know, and I think that it's natural. If you are 18 or 19, all you know is what it means to be 18 or 19. And failures and disappointments can loom sort of so large, right, because that's your only context. And I think it's hearing from alumni and hearing just from other adults about, you know, moments that feel monumental and moments that feel like, you know, they're huge sort of failures actually are survivable, right? Like that in the in the in the long range of a life, you know, you'll look back at things that seemed so terrible at the time and you'll be able to sort of contextualize and see that, you know, actually 
I got through it, right? It felt terrible at the time, but I got through it. And there was so much more to come that I could look forward to and that I could enjoy. Um, and that, I think, is the, the, the gift that, you know, alumni can provide, right? Because sort of like they've been through the Princeton experience. So they came out from the other side. They've had their failures. They've had their disappointments. And yet they persisted and they've, they've you know, and, and they are where they are, right? And so I think that, that oftentimes my wish when I'm in, in, in the office with a student who's struggling with depression or who you know, just failed a class or who is having to take a medical leave and they feel like their world is over, you know, I, I, my, my wish is for them to just be able to have that insight into like, you know what, this is survivable, right? There, there, there are always second chances. And even if Princeton and graduating Princeton isn't even in the cards, that's survivable too, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's my hope. And, and, you know, all of the different ways that you were talking, Jess, about ways that alumni could sort of share their stories, I think that, that the more that those stories are shared, the more students can see examples of, of being able to survive sort of adversity and come out from the other side, the, the more that they can be exposed to the fact that there isn't just one path to a successful life that I think can be incredibly powerful, right? Like a career trajectory is oftentimes like very, you know, up and down, takes all of these different turns. And I think that that can be really hard to sort of like imagine, but to, to realize that that's actually the typical story, I think goes a long way towards making the challenges that they may experience now feel a little bit more tolerable. Very well said. I, I think I think that students have for a long time received a message that they are where they are because of what they've done. And I think we we are in the best position to realize our full potential when we remind them as many times as it takes that you are loved for who you are. And um, I think that is a big part of the part of the process. You can do hard things when you feel supported and you feel loved. Oh, I love that. Thanks for having this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. This has been terrific. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music.